everyone, it's the Rosenfeld Review Podcast. I'm Lou Rosenfeld, your host, and uh, I have a guest today. Uh, you may know him uh, if you've used, uh, you may have used some of the, the services and sites that he's helped bring uh, to the web. Um, I was a big fan of uh, Technorati some time ago. Uh, Dave Siffrey. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Lou. Great to be here. Uh, we can talk about your journey and, and how Technorati was part of that. Uh, but just to, to frame it with some context, uh, Dave is one of the new curators of the Enterprise Experience Conference that used to be known as Enterprise UX. Um, yes, we changed the name, dropped the user, we actually still do care about users, but uh, more importantly than the name change is the focus. Uh, this will be our fifth edition, but it's gonna be far more focused on collaboration uh, between functions, between disciplines, we're going to have cross-functional case studies, we're going to have tense and somewhat difficult conversations between people representing different functions on stage, and getting uh, to um, really dig into uh, what it takes to bring together the people required uh, to have great enterprise experiences means going beyond UX people, and uh, that's what we've done with our, with our curation team that Dave has joined. Uh, Dave has a background in computer science, uh, has had a really interesting career, uh, and has come to a place that many of us in the UX world have come to, again, from a different direction, really thinking about organizational design. So Dave, why don't I um, put it to you to paint the uh, picture or tell us about the journey from getting a BS in computer science uh, at Johns Hopkins back in the day to your, uh, your settling in the Bay Area, doing some startups, doing a lot of other good things and becoming really interested in organizational design. Yeah, thanks Lou. Um, I have to say that it started for me when I was just a little kid and uh, I was a, a science fiction avid reader uh, played Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, you know, and, and was just into a lot of really nerdy stuff. And my dad brought home a computer one day when I was nine years old, and he just put it down on the desk saying, hey, we have this from our school for the summer, you want to go play with it? And I taught myself how to program, and I was hooked. Uh, and what happened for me was when you combined that sort of joy in the nerd of it and figuring things out and building these worlds. And then when I got a little older, I got really excited about just helping other people, right? And there's a, there's a tremendous sense of satisfaction that comes in solving big problems and helping lots and lots of people and realizing that, holy cow, you could actually use networked computers to be able to multiply the effects of the kinds of solutions that you're building to help these people, I was hooked. And so I studied computer science and you know, got my, my formal engineering degree, but very quickly uh, knew after living overseas for a little while that what really got me excited was helping to build products and helping to build companies that you know, had the ambition to really make a major change, right? To, to help change the world, if, if I'm really going to abuse that particular metaphor. And um, I had the chance to work with a bunch of incredibly talented people really early on in my career and, and help me to, 
helped to guide me to learn how to do this effectively. But I'll tell you, um, you know, over that course of that time, I started six different companies uh, and, you know, two of them were horrible, crash and burn, just like gaping holes in the ground, you know, with wreckage and people's hair on fire, myself included, that we were all just running from the wreckage. Um, and, you know, some that became pretty successful, Technorati certainly being one of them. And thank you so much for your, for your kind words. Uh, and, and a, you know, a couple that are still going on today. Um, and I, I was very, very interested in all of this time around understanding, number one, how does creativity happen? And then how do we actually institutionalize and develop that so that we can actually build organizations that are more creative and innovative? And, and then on the other side, uh, you know, how do we then master this art of meeting the need in a marketplace? And how do we figure out how to do that as quickly as possible? Um, so that we can waste as little time and energy and effort as possible in exploring those opportunities. And boy, I can tell you that I have made way more mistakes than the answers that I've been able to, to learn, but I've certainly learned some patterns. And one of those patterns really relates to how humans tend to organize themselves. Forget about companies, forget about computers, forget about you know, all of that other stuff. That if we look anthropologically, we can start to look at some of the larger patterns that humans have seemed to behave in, mm -hmm. in both stable units as well as very unstable units over time. Now you're making me think a little bit about um, a book that I read a couple of years back, and, and many have. Uh, it's been pretty popular, Yuval Harari's uh, Sapiens. Yep. And he starts that book out by comparing uh, uh, Homo sapiens to, I think there's around, there were around six other uh, subspecies, uh, humanoid sub subspecies like uh, Neanderthals and Denisovans. And he talks a lot about uh, how we, our species, had a, the ability to, um, or to, to basically connect with more people, more of our fellow uh, sapiens, and that gave us a pretty large advantage uh, versus uh, the other strains that could only get together in smaller groups, especially when we clashed. Is that the sort of direction that you're, you're finding uh, pertains to to what you're seeing uh, play out in organizations. Yeah, and, and I want to be very clear. There's a ton of pseudoscience here, and I'm not making claims that I know the correct answer. Like, what, what, I, what I can claim here is my own personal experience of both, you know, building organizations from literally being ground zero, the, the founder or the co-founder, you know, growing them to hundreds of people, and then, you know, I've had the fortunate ability to be able to join a number of organizations, either that were going through a significant growth phase. Um, you know, when I joined Lyft, uh, there were about um, 1,600 people at the company. Uh, and I got to watch them as they grew to over 4,500 people and to see what happened. And, um, and to look at some of the commonalities that come out of my own experience, 
and then to look at some of the theories that are out there and at least see which one of these theories seem to resonate well. But I make absolutely no claim for scientific veracity. I'm really just talking about pattern matching now. And I think it's very important to recognize that, you know, there are a lot of people who make a lot of claims uh, about this stuff. And I'm not making any claims other than my own personal experience and what seems to what seems to not work, <laughs> right? That's actually a really good one to look at and to see what patterns tend to, tend to have happened over and over again, as well as with people who I talk to. Um, and I think we need to recognize that there's a cultural context, there's a technological context as well in here. So, you know, rather than try to spout, oh, I've got some generalized theory on this thing. Um, you know, I think it's just more appropriate to say, here's some hard earned experience and some patterns that seem to both work and some anti-patterns that seem to result in a lot of chaos and difficulty. Well, why don't we start with some of the anti-patterns that you've seen? So you, you, you talked about learning the hard way earlier. Yep. A lot of experience doing that, which is true of all the most intelligent people, if you ask me. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of anti-patterns, maybe when we try to understand systems of people, in organizations, what what are you what did you learn? What 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 did you go in thinking and and were quickly disabused of? Yeah, I mean, well, probably the single biggest one is thinking that everybody else thinks and communicates like me. Ah, oh, that was like probably the single biggest and first uh, anti pattern that I that I learned was, you know, you hang out with a group of people, you get to know them, you get a certain shorthand going. You know, there's a certain group of people that you like to talk to and hang out with, and you think that the rest of the world behaves that way. And it's just probably the single biggest blind spot that I see when I mentor and advise startup founders today is that they seem to, they, they don't recognize, they know it intellectually, but they cannot concretize the fact that the rest of the world does not think like, like we do or, or like they do. And, and so... You have to build into whatever it is that you do, especially as you're investigating solutions for a larger group of people than just your in-group. Like, what are you, how do you actually build in the diversity of opinions that don't match with the way that you think and don't match with the way that you communicate? Well, all right. So let me dig into that a little more. Um, you know, I, I, I'm someone who's actually always kind of enjoyed working with people who are very different than I am. Uh, and, um, but I did learn the hard way that um, I, I can work with anyone, typically, uh, as long as there's a commonality of values. Mm -hmm. Like that is the sort of floor that we have to all be standing on in order to, to collaborate. Our language could be different, our motivations could be different. But if our values are very different, it's almost impossible. That's like the deal breaker. Are you seeing patterns like that where there's like, you know, yes, we, 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 the world doesn't work like we all work. People don't all see things the way we do, but there is some minimum commonality that we need to have. Sure. And, and by the way, I don't have to like everybody that I work with. I, I don't even have to agree with all of their values to still be able to get things done together with them as a team. I, I think that there's a question around, are there a certain basic set of um, 
environmental variables, let's call them, right? Or, or these environmental norms that we all need to at least implicitly agree to in order to make something that isn't going to be unstable from, a, from an organizational perspective? Absolutely. Do we all have to agree on all of the explicit, like do we have to have the same politics? Do we have to have, do we all need to be introverts or extroverts? Do we, you know, do we need to, um, you know, look the same way or be the same gender? No, absolutely not. In fact, you know, the exact opposite I find is true is that the more diverse the team is uh, and the more welcoming that you can create an environment to actually build, you know, there was a great project uh, called Project Aristotle uh, done by the folks over at Google where they looked at successful teams and, and you know, the two things that they found that were so deeply uh, important was, number one, a sense of psychological safety, right? That everyone felt safe being able to represent themselves and be themselves uh, inside of the group. And, you know, the second was conversational turn sharing. Right, that whatever it was that everyone had had a certain uh, respect for the ability for other people to be able to, to share and take turns. And so many of those other things that we tend to think about, like, do they have to have an IQ of 180? Like, actually, no. In fact, in some cases, you know, those kinds of things can actually detract from the success of, of a team or a project. And um, to get back to the, the, the previous question, though, I think we also need to be aware that there is another piece of context in terms of success, right? So one of the big ones here is just the number of people that you're interacting with. So if, if it's just two people, right? So the single biggest interaction is when, you, or the single biggest change is when you move from literally doing work just individually to doing some doing work with another person, right? Um, and all of a sudden we now have to communicate not just across the corpus callosum in our heads, but we actually have to communicate with another human being, which significantly increases communication costs. Um, the good news is that it also tends to double your productivity, right? So when you go from one person to two people, you get nearly double the productivity, but you still have to pay a certain amount in communication costs. Mm -hmm. When you go from two to three, well, you're now doubling your communication costs again because each person now has one additional person that they need to be talking to. And as you notice, like if you do this, I could draw this out in a little graph, right? That every additional person that you add into an organizational unit, the, the number of communication links increases by N, right? Mm -hmm. The number of people that are in the unit. So what you can imagine here is that communication costs all of a sudden are now increasing by the total size of the group, whereas productivity increases only increased by one, by that one additional person that you've added. So very, very quickly, communication costs can swamp the additional productivity that you're gaining from these people growing as a group. So what has happened out of that, I think, and again, whether this is biological or just computationally feasible, is that we have, created these kinds of stable group formations that seem to work at certain sizes. And by the way, that seem to fail at other sizes, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, going from two to three is another major one. Going from three to about eight 
is another sort of very interesting stability point. And, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos called this the, the two pizza team, mm-hmm. right? So can you, can you get this team in a room together? Uh, with, can you feed them a meal with two pizzas? Um, now, is that eight? Is that seven? Is that 10? You know, we're, we're, no one is trying to be- It was eight for my first company. My, my second company is now at eight, so it's going to be interesting to see. Well, it's wonderful, right? And so at eight, you have that wonderful feeling of like you never have to hold a meeting because you can all look at each other over a conference room table or just across the cubicle farm and just be like, hey, what about this? What about that? Everybody knows what everybody else is doing. Um, Everybody can still do their individual work, but you don't need to have a separation of communication structure. Now, that shifts once you start to get mm, 10, 12, 15, you know, whatever, something along those lines, there's a qualitative shift. And you can't have everybody in the room all the time. In fact, it's hard to get rooms that can handle that many people. Second, you know, very often you'll have some sort of a functional breakdown, right? So salespeople will be talking with other salespeople more. Marketing people will be talking with marketing people more. Uh, you know, engineers talking with engineers, right? And so it's not at all uncommon. I, I call this next phase the little red schoolhouse, mm-hmm. right? Where you, you basically have either people who are functional uh, in particular areas kind of sticking together with each other. And maybe you'll have a weekly all hands, right? Maybe you will have uh, a, you know, a, a, a second, like that sort of executive level, of management, like so your first level of management starts to form there, and the executives do the communication. And by the way, guess what? They're in a team of what, five to eight? Mm-hmm. Again. Right, so again, you start to see these really interesting numbers show up recursively as you look at organizational structures that tend to amplify productivity over communication costs. Um, now, there's a very interesting thing that happens when you go, by the way, you know, 1820, that's sort of like the size of a platoon in an army, right? Again, squads, you know, in the sort of six to eight range. So, so like, again, not at all unusual that you see some of these things being reflected. And where organizations tend to fall apart is when you don't change the communication paradigm as the number of people grow, right? So everybody loves to look back at the time when, oh, wasn't it great when we were just six people or eight people? And now look at us, you know, ah, oh, we're like 30 people and gosh, you know, I hate what they're, what they're doing over there. And, you know, gosh, why can't we get our, 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 our stuff together? And, you know, how come the company culture has changed? Well, because a lot of this is about communication cost and productivity. So there's a very interesting range that I found happens. And I had a, a number of startups and I've advised a number of companies that, absolutely fail in this next in this next size range and and this i call the sort of 20 to 50 range so i call this range the death zone Mm -hmm. (laughs) right because you're in 20 to 50 you tend to be able to do one thing really well but you're being asked to do two or three or four things and you haven't had the uh you don't have the luxury to be able to say bring on middle management yet right in the middle management core is starting to form but it hasn't really hasn't really formed yet and so everybody feels super stressed 
Everybody feels like it's clunky. Every new person that comes on board is actually increasing communication costs. Um, and, and by the way, if you're thinking about this also just from a pure cost perspective, you know, monetary costs, right? All of those salaries still have to get paid. Yeah. Even though overall productivity of the organization actually drops on a per, uh, on a per person basis. So it's not at all unusual that like these kinds of, at this range, right? So that 20 to 50 range, many companies plow right into the wall. They raise a bunch of money, but they spend it like that because they can't seem to get to that next level of scale. Um, so some of the things that you can do, by the way, we're, that, we've, that we've done to attenuate this is like you get really hardcore with your financial accountant and you make sure that like if you're at 20 people and you haven't hit product market fit for whatever it is that you're trying to build, adding five more people, even though you think that's what you need, ain't going to solve this for you. Mm -hmm. You actually need to figure out what do I, how can I do less with the same number of people in order to be able to figure out what's going to make our unit costs applicable so that we can actually hire every additional new person. And, and when you do that and you really think through the financial piece of it, that enables you to grow up to about 60. Um, now at 60, there's this other really magical thing that, that happens. And, and again, whether it's 55 or it's, you know, 65, like it, it's, it's less about the, this, the exact number of people. It's, it's more around there's some kind of a new stability structure that occurs at that sort of 60 to 70 person range where you can have one of two things that occur. So you either have a significant enough amount of departmentalization, right? So marketing is well-staffed, sales is well-staffed, design is well-staffed, engineering is well-staffed, that now you can actually do multiple things at once and not be falling over all the time, not be lurching from crisis to crisis. Um, or you can actually break yourself down into a P&L unit. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, whether it's by, ge by geography or what have you, you can really start to have a fully functioning, uh, you know, specialized P&L. And what's fascinating here is that from 60 up until about 120, it just blossoms like crazy. Right. It, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing because now you're just fractally growing out each of the different departments or you're growing out the P&L. Um, at 120-ish, and I say again, ish, there's this interesting number that you run into, right? So there's this guy named Robin Dunbar, who is an anthropologist. Uh, back in the 90s, he came out with a theory that was speculating that human scale organizations, right, can really only have about 150 people in the, in the notional in-group. Right, in the idea that, oh, I know that guy or gal, and if I ran into them at a bar, like I would feel comfortable walking over to them uninvited and, and invite myself in for a drink. Right? That's that's sort of the way to think about this kind of notional idea of in-group. Um, and when you know there's a number of different theories as to why that number seems to be an interesting number. I'm not gonna get into all of that, like we honestly don't know, but mm -hmm. it seems to be something that is common across different organizations around the world. And 
what you find is, and, and they studied this, for example, with you know tribes in in uh, uh, in Southeast Asia, for example, that when you when that number grows beyond that sort of 120 to 150 point, it is two, one of two things happens. So either the the there is a a split off, and and there's a there's a natural mitosis that happens with the group, or there's a civil war. Or um, somebody figures out how to establish a religion to, to keep them bonded together uh, in a new way. At least that's what Harari gets into with the idea that, you know, um, sapiens are good storytellers. So whether we're gossiping about each other as a way to know about each other or we're, we're, we're bonded together through something that's actually really more of a, a meme level. Um, you know, there are other ways to do it, but they're, they're not necessarily good ways. They're not necessarily, you know, a, a good idea to, to uh, in terms of how you bond people together. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting what you're saying about the, four, the, I think it was, was it 40 to 60 or 20 to 40? Sort of 20 to 50-ish, 20 to 50. Yeah, I mean, my, my first company, you know, we, when we went beyond 20, we got up to about 40, um, I, I remember feeling kind of glum a lot because mm -hmm. it, it was both recent enough and the same personnel were there from prior to going past 20, where we had like a whiff of how it had been in that golden, whatever it was, eight to 20 yep. stage. And then we kind of hit this unpleasant, awkward adolescence beyond 20. And, and, uh, um, I, it was my least favorite time to be at the company, to be honest. Um, so we've we got to wrap up in a minute, but I, you know, you're talking about the, the numbers, right? There's a, there's certain thresholds that you, you mentioned or ranges, but you've also touched on a number of other factors or variables like, um, how, you know, how easy or not it is for the people in a team to communicate how much hierarchy is there in the way they're organized? How about how much they are working with each other remotely or not? Uh, there are a number of these types of variables. I'm sure there are many more that we didn't even touch on. And I'm wondering if you've seen, uh, and I'm sure they're out there, but maybe you can refer us uh, to uh, any kind of books or articles or just models that pull these things together and might be, useful as at minimum straw men for a manager or a leader or a startup founder to think about as they try to model their company. So, you know, whether you're at an enterprise or a startup, I imagine you need to ask yourself the question of, all right, we're now at 10 people. Um, a, a potential future is to, to get to 20, um, but should the, you know, what is the cost of those additional 10 being remote versus not? What's the cost of those additional 10 being from different functions or from different tribes? Uh, you know, how many, how many middle managers do I need in that equation? That sort of thing. Is there any kind of good model for that, that, that you can point people to? It's such a great question. I have been looking for that manual my whole life. You know, it's almost to the point where, like, I've, I've, off, I, I've sometimes thought, gosh, you know, like, we need to do a little bit more research and maybe write it. 
Um, because I know the publishing there. house that you might want to talk to. <laughs> I mean, the experience is there. And what's fascinating is, I mean, for example, you can look at books like Reed Hoffman's Blitzscaling, right, is, is, a, is a great introduction. There's, um, gosh, there's another one. I'm, hold on, I'm going to go get it. Okay. And this is where um, I can mention that uh, I, will, I would have said it at the end, but Dave is, again, one of the curators of Enterprise Experience. Uh, it will be in San Francisco, June 3rd through 5th, 2019. You might have known that conference is Enterprise UX. In any case, um, tickets are on sale, and you can learn more about this conference at enterpriseexperience.net. And Dave is back. Yep. So I'll give you another one. Uh, there's a terrific one that just came out by Elad Gill called The High Growth Handbook, which actually does cover a lot of these kinds of questions he, he takes it more from a story viewpoint where he, he interviews a number of successful startup and company founders and, and growth managers. But there's a lot of really, really good experience that you can take and learn from other people's failures and other people's successes in there. I, I still feel like there's no, there's no manual that I've seen that really talks about this from a theoretical perspective. Um, and, you know, it, it's um, the technologies, for example, when you look at the printing press, right, and what that did, having a technology that allowed the dissemination of these kinds of top-down ideas like religion, when you look at, you know, the television as, as again, a similar one-to-many medium, uh, you know, these all helped create uh, certain types of social structures that worked, that were up until then, really unstable, right? The idea of nationalism, you know, really didn't work very well until you had technologies like this. Um, right. And now with the internet, where there's a more of a many-to-many -many opportunity, I think we're starting to see some really, really interesting new forms of organization that are starting to, you know, pop up and see how well they work, right? But there's still the basics, I think, the basic question around uh, how do we, what is the cost of communication compared to the cost or the, the gain from additional productivity? You know, the, this fundamental shift or bending of those two curves uh, can be bent by technologies, but they still fundamentally help to govern the success or failure of these different group sizes. And and so one of the things that I like to think about and that I've been doing a lot lately from a design perspective is to step out of the idea uh, of, you know, design purely as, you know, pixel pushing or, you know, any of those other ways that we, you know, some other people outside the industry tend to think of design and instead start looking at this from the perspective of are there certain kinds of structures that we can intentionally design to help to amplify the benefits of whatever organization size, whatever organization size you're at today. And by the way, are there some problems that are going to come no matter whatever size you're at? And how do you design systems to be able to help attenuate some of those problems, right? So the, the example, for example, of having really strict financial controls when you're going from that 20 to 50 stage is a great example of using intentional design to be able to help a group or a company be able to cross that chasm. Um, and, and then, you know, recognizing 
that there are going to be just good old days and feeling like the things aren't the same anymore. But that's not that people are bad. It's because it's just a natural change in the size of the org. Well, you know, whether uh, what you're talking about leads to a book or, or maybe giving your computer science background, there's some app that would be built on an algorithm you design. I, I think there's something here. Uh, and um, uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this and maybe there's some way we can have you talking about it at the conference itself. Uh, Dave Sifri, it's great to have you on the show and it's also just fantastic to be working with you on developing the program for Enterprise Experience 2019. Um, I wish we had more time. Uh, if any of you want to learn more about Dave, you might want to go to his website, sifri.com, S-I-F-R-Y.com. Anything else for us, Dave? Lou, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, I'm, I'm getting so much out of working with you and the rest of the team on the conference. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to getting together this summer. Awesome. We'll see you soon. Thanks again, Dave Sivri.